This is Chapter 56 of Following the Equator. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Following the Equator by Mark Twain. Chapter 56. On the Road Again. The Hand Car. A Thirty-Five Mile Slide. The Banyan Tree. A Dramatic Performance. The Railroad Loop. The Halfway House. The Brain Fever Bird. The Coppersmith Bird. Nightingales and Cue Owls. There are two times in a man's life when he should not speculate, when he can't afford it, and when he can. Puddenhead Wilson's New Calendar. On Monday and Tuesday at sunrise we again had fair to middling views of the stupendous mountains. Then, being well cooled off and refreshed, we were ready to chance the weather of the lower world once more. We traveled uphill by the regular train five miles to the summit, then changed to a little canvas-canopied hand-car for the thirty-five-mile descent. It was the size of a sleigh. It had six seats, and was so low that it seemed to rest on the ground. It had no engine or other propelling power, and needed none to help it fly down those steep inclines. It only needed a strong brake to modify its flight, and it had that. There was a story of a disastrous trip made down the mountain once in this little car by the lieutenant-governor of Bengal, when the car jumped the track and threw its passengers over a precipice. It was not true, but the story had value for me, for it made me nervous, and nervousness wakes a person up and makes him alive and alert, and heightens the thrill of a new and doubtful experience. The car could really jump the track, of course. A pebble on the track, placed there by either accident or malice, at a sharp curve where one might strike it before the eye could discover it, could derail the car and fling it down into India. And the fact that the lieutenant-governor had escaped was no proof that I would have the same luck. And standing there, looking down upon the Indian Empire from the airy altitude of seven thousand feet, it seemed unpleasantly far, dangerously far to be flung from a hand-car. But, after all, there was but small danger for me. What there was, was for Mr. Pugh, inspector of a division of the Indian police, in whose company and protection we had come from Calcutta. He had seen long service as an artillery officer, was less nervous than I was, and so he was to go ahead of us in a pilot hand-car with a Gurkha and another native, and the plan was that when we should see his car jump over a precipice, we must put on our brake and send for another pilot. It was a good arrangement. Also, Mr. Bernard, chief engineer of the mountain division of the road, was to take personal charge of our car, and he had been down the mountain in it many a time. Everything looked safe. Indeed, there was but one questionable detail left. The regular train was to follow us as soon as we should start and it might run over us. Privately, I thought it would. The road fell sharply down in front of us, and went corkscrewing in and out around the crags and precipices, down, down, forever down, suggesting nothing so exactly or so uncomfortably as a crooked toboggan slide with no end to it. Mr. Pugh waved his flag and started, like an arrow from a bow, and before I could get out of the car we were gone, too. I had previously had but one sensation like the shock of that departure, and that was the gaspy shock that took my breath away the first time that I was discharged from the summit of a toboggan slide. But in both instances the sensation was pleasurable, intensely so. 
it was a sudden and immense exultation a mixed ecstasy of deadly fright and unimaginable joy i believe that this combination makes the perfection of human delight the pilot car's flight down the mountain suggested the swoop of a swallow that is skimming the ground so swiftly and smoothly and gracefully it swept down the long straight reaches and soared in and out of the bends and around the corners we raced after it and seemed to flash by the capes and crags with the speed of light and now and then we almost overtook it and had hopes but it was only playing with us when we got near it released its brake made a spring around the corner and the next time it spun into view a few seconds later it looked as small as a wheelbarrow it was so far away we played with the train in the same way we often got out to gather flowers or sit on a precipice and look at the scenery then presently we would hear a dull and growing roar and the long coils of the train would come into sight behind and above us but we did not need to start till the locomotive was close down upon us then we soon left it far behind it had to stop at every station therefore it was not an embarrassment to us our brake was a good piece of machinery it could bring the car to a standstill on a slope as steep as a house roof the scenery was grand and varied and beautiful and there was no hurry we could always stop and examine it there was abundance of time we did not need to hamper the train if it wanted the road we could switch off and let it go by then overtake it and pass it later we stopped at one place to see the gladstone cliff a great crag which the ages and the weather have sculptured into a recognizable portrait of the venerable statesman mr gladstone is a stockholder in the road and nature began this portrait ten thousand years ago with the idea of having the compliment ready in time for the event we saw a banyan tree which sent down supporting stems from branches which were sixty feet above the ground that is i suppose it was a banyan its bark resembled that of the great banyan in the botanical gardens at calcutta that spider-legged thing with its wilderness of vegetable columns and there were frequent glimpses of a totally leafless tree upon whose innumerable twigs and branches a cloud of crimson butterflies had lighted apparently in fact these brilliant red butterflies were flowers but the illusion was good afterward in south africa i saw another splendid effect made by red flowers this flower was probably called the torch plant should have been named so anyway it had a slender stem several feet high and from its top stood up a single tongue of flame an intensely red flower of the size and shape of a small corn-cob the stem stood three or four feet apart all over a great hill-slope that was a mile long and make one think of what the place de la concorde would be if its myriad lights were red instead of white and yellow a few miles down the mountain we stopped half an hour to see a tibetan dramatic performance it was in the open air on the hillside the audience was composed of tibetans gurkhas and other unusual people the costumes of the actors were in the last degree outlandish and the performance was in keeping with the clothes to an accompaniment of barbarous noises the actors stepped out one after another and began to spin around with immense swiftness and vigor and violence chanting the while and soon the whole troupe would be spinning and chanting and raising the dust they were performing an ancient and celebrated historical play and a chinaman explained it to me in pidgin english as it went along the play was obscure enough without the explanation with the explanation added it was 
opaque. As a drama, this ancient historical work of art was defective, I thought, but as a wild and barbarous spectacle the representation was beyond criticism. Far down the mountain we got out to look at a piece of remarkable loop engineering, a spiral where the road curves upon itself with such abruptness that when the regular train came down and entered the loop we stood over it and saw the locomotive disappear under our bridge, then in a few moments appear again, chasing its own tail, and we saw it gain on it, overtake it, draw ahead past the rear cars, and run a race with that end of the train. It was like a snake swallowing itself. Halfway down the mountain we stopped about an hour at Mr. Barnard's house for refreshments, and while we were sitting on the veranda looking at the distant panorama of hills through a gap in the forest, we came very near seeing a leopard kill a calf. It killed it the day before. It is a wild place and lovely. From the woods all about came the songs of birds, among them the contributions of a couple of birds which I was not then acquainted with, the brain-fever bird and the coppersmith. The song of the brain-fever demon starts on a low but steadily rising key, and is a spiral twist which augments in intensity and severity with each added spiral, growing sharper and sharper, and more and more painful, more and more agonizing, more and more maddening, intolerable, unendurable, as it bores deeper and deeper and deeper into the listener's brain, until at last the brain-fever comes as a relief and the man dies. I am bringing some of these birds home to America. They will be a great curiosity there, and it is believed that in our climate they will multiply like rabbits. The coppersmith bird's note at a certain distance away has the ring of a sledge on granite. At a certain other distance the hammering has a more metallic ring, and you might think that the bird was mending a copper kettle. At another distance it has a more woodeny thump but it is a thump that is full of energy, and sounds just like starting a bung. So he is a hard bird to name with a single name. He is a stone-breaker, coppersmith, and bung-starter, and even then he is not completely named, for when he is close by you find that there is a soft, deep, melodious quality in his thump, and for that no satisfying name occurs to you. You will not mind his other notes but when he camps near enough for you to hear that one, you presently find that his measured and monotonous repetition of it is beginning to disturb you. Next it will weary you, soon it will distress you, and before long each thump will hurt your head. If this goes on, you will lose your mind with the pain and misery of it, and go crazy. I am bringing some of these birds home to America. There is nothing like them there. They will be a great surprise, and it is said that in a climate like ours they will surpass expectation for fecundity. I am bringing some nightingales, too, and some cue-owls. I got them in Italy. The song of the nightingale is the deadliest known to ornithology. That demoniacal shriek can kill at thirty yards. The note of the cue-owl is infinitely soft and sweet, soft and sweet as the whisper of a flute but penetrating, oh, beyond belief, it can bore through boiler-iron. It is a lingering note, and comes in triplets, on the one unchanging key. Then a silence of fifteen seconds, then the triplet again, and so on, all night. 
at first it is divine then less so then trying then distressing then excruciating then agonizing and at the end of two hours the listener is a maniac and so presently we took to the hand-car and went flying down the mountain again flying and stopping flying and stopping till at last we were in the plain once more and stowed for calcutta in the regular train that was the most enjoyable day i have spent in the earth for rousing tingling rapturous pleasure there is no holiday trip that approaches the bird flight down the himalayas in a hand-car it has no fault no blemish no lack except that there are only thirty-five miles of it instead of five hundred end of chapter fifty six